The LifeSpring Media family of programs are made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Thank you. LifeSpring 175, Phil Keggy, Working Class Guitar Player. Hello and welcome to LifeSpring. My name is Steve Webb and I'm so happy to have you with me today. No, 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 we're not changing our theme again. This music you're hearing right now is Phil Keggy, and I've got such a great show for you, and I can't wait to introduce you to this music and one of today's great musicians. If you're not familiar with the music of Phil Keggy, believe me, you are in for a treat. If you are familiar with him, you're in for a treat too, because you're going to get to hear him in a way that you probably never have because Phil and I had a chance to talk last week for over an hour, and you're going to get to know another dimension of this remarkably gifted man. And not only are you going to get to hear Phil's music that you're listening to right now, but you're going to get to hear two brand new cuts from his soon-to-be-released, any minute now, CD, Phantasmagorical. Now, during our conversation, we talked about lots of different musicians, and I have woven some clips of most of them into our conversation. So you're going to get to sample many different artists and genres today, kind of an audio smorgasbord. I hope you like it, and I hope you'll give me feedback. Call me toll-free at 877-433-9091 or email me at steve.lifespring at gmail.com. And speaking of email, here's one from a brand new addition to the Lifespring family. Shelley says... Hi, Steve. I'm so grateful that I found your website, LifeSpring, and I've started listening to the daily readings as part of my devotions. However, I would like to read along with what I'm listening to, and the versions that I use normally don't follow exactly what you're reading. Being able to read word for word helps me to concentrate. Could you please tell me which version you're reading so that I could try and find it online and read it along with you? And I told Shelley that I was using the Net Bible, which can be found at netbible.org. Shelly, it's great to have you as a part of the family, and I'm glad you're listening to the LifeSpring Family Bible. And if you're not familiar with that, check it out at LifeSpringMedia.com. We're reading through the entire Bible in one year. So again, I love to get your email. And speaking of that, I would like to know how you like these interviews that I've been bringing to you. We've done Brian Duncan, we did John Schlitt, and we're doing Phil today, and I've got some other ones lined up. Do you want to hear more of these things or do you want to hear less? Do you like that I devote most of an episode to the interview or would you like me to shorten them significantly or break them up across two or three episodes? I really want to hear what you have to say about this. So steve.lifespring at gmail.com or better yet, phone me toll free at 877-433-9091. Now, before we get to Phil, we need to take care of some business. The bills do need to be paid. So after the business, I promise we'll get right to the conversation. First, I want to thank those members of the LifeSpring family who contribute gifts every month. You are an encouragement and you do make a difference. And next, I want to thank the good folks at CovenantEyes.com. I just got word from them today that they're going to continue their sponsorship of the show to at least the end of the year. And I'm really thrilled about that. As I've told you so many times in the past, I believe in the benefits of Covenant Eyes and their approach to helping people defeat the temptation of internet porn. And we've talked more about their accountability software, but another tool that they have is the Covenant Eyes filter. It's a great thing, especially for young families who want help in keeping children's eyes from bad websites. Covenant Eyes Filter is amazingly flexible and it's customizable for each user. So if you share your computer with your kids, 
their internet browsing can be filtered differently than yours. Uh, we'll be talking more about this great tool in the coming weeks, but don't wait for me to tell you about it, okay? If you've got kids in your house, go to Covenant Eyes today and find out for yourself how they can help your family stay safe. When you sign up, use my promo code LIFESPRING and you'll get your first 30 days absolutely free. If you find at the end of that 30 days that it's not really working for you, if, if it's not quite what you want, then you can cancel, no problem. Try before you buy. That's a great way to do business, if you ask me. And lastly, I want to mention 1-800-PETMEDS.com. If you've got a pet and your pet needs prescription medications, you've got to check out 1-800-PETMEDS.com. They've got amazing low prices, and when you use my promo code LIFE, you'll get another 10% off, plus you'll get free shipping with orders of 39 bucks. If you've got a pet, check out 1-800-PETMEDS. So now let me introduce you to one of the nicest guys I've talked to in a long time. I've been a fan of Phil Keggy for years. As a matter of fact, so long that I've got some Phil Keggy vinyl LPs in my collection. He's an incredibly gifted guitar player, among the best in the world in my opinion, truly, and I've said so for years, and I was so thrilled that he agreed to spend some time with me last week on the phone. Now, when our conversation began, what I did is I filled Phil in on the background of the LifeSpring show and uh, so that he'd have a bit of an understanding of who listens to the show and my philosophy on how a person can most effectively make a difference in the world around him. I explained that part of that philosophy was learned at the groundbreaking radio station that I used to work at a long time ago, where we played a mix of contemporary Christian music and the popular music that was being played on mainstream radio, creating a listening experience that was designed to draw both non-Christians and Christians. So let's join the conversation where Phil reacts to what I told him. I think that's what it should be. I think what's wrong with Christian radio today is... It's all isolated to Christian pop music for the most part. And when there's so much music out there that are asking questions and revealing people's lives and hearts and, and their and their journey and their search and, you know, and just sometimes just good art that obviously God is in it, you know. Yes. Which is probably what you were doing back then, huh? Yeah, oh yeah. You know, we, we were really dedicated and committed to that format. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it didn't take off commercially, and obviously the people that owned the station needed to make a, a living. Mm-hmm. So it only lasted for probably three or four years. But uh, man, it was, it was exciting times. Well, that's because it's reaching out to the world like what, what Jesus' heart is. You know, reaching out to those who are hungry. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come for the the healthy. I came for the sick. That's right. And that's that's probably the real should be the aim of broadcasting. You yeah. know, where you're relating to every man. It's like when Paul was there in Athens. You know, he didn't just speak to believers. He was speaking to everyone who uh, were looking for God and uh, were looking for someone to worship or something to worship. And he said, "Well, this is it. You know, I'm here for you." Yes. And uh, yeah, you know, I've never I, I've done some podcasts last year, and I did only one this year. Uh, I, I'm really wanting to get back into like compiling these songs, and but I've never been really good at preaching over the internet. I'd like to leave that to people who know how to do it. Uh-huh. I'm not a preacher. Well, but you preach through your music, and I, I try. The, yeah, I try to be a witness that way. Yeah. Yes. 
I listened to, to your last podcast, the one that you did the tribute to Keith and Rich and, and Mark and Larry, and it touched my heart so much. And it was it was fun to listen to because you had some of the interaction that you had like with Larry. And yeah. and mm-hmm. it was it was touching and I have to say, Phil, that it was probably one of the best podcasts by anybody that I've ever heard. Um, you, oh, thank you. Thank you. It, it was such a great tribute to those guys, and uh, the fact that you know you were obviously friends with these guys, and you had a personal relationship with them—not just you know professional, but you were. It, it sounds as if you knew these guys, and you spent time with them. And oh man, exactly, you know, I did. Yeah, it, it was fantastic. You know, I never, I never entered into their personal lives very much. You know, um, our, our associations were always usually over over music or a project. And, uh, for instance, I worked with Mark Hurd in concert. Point blank to my soul I'm trying hard to keep my self-control I want to go I wish it this night worked on one of my albums and I worked with him as he worked with Randy Stonehill on a couple of his albums and but you know we never really spent a lot of personal time together outside the studio same thing with Rich Mullen when he rolls up his sleeves he ain't just putting on the ritz there's thunder and his footsteps and lightning in his fists and I did some concerts. I he'd show up at concerts that I'd play, and we'd just visit. And but I never, you know, went to like a reservation with him and lived among where he was living. And right. uh, the same thing with Larry Norman. They say to cut my hair, they're driving me insane. I threw it out long to make room for my brain. But sometimes people don't understand what's a good boy doing in a rock and roll band. There's nothing wrong with playing blues lips. Well, if you got a reason, tell me to my face. Why should the devil have all the good music? There's nothing wrong with what I play. Jesus is a rock and roll. We had real mutual respect for each other, and I know what he had done in, in terms of, like, the boldness and the clever way he wrote lyrics, and he was a real artist. Yes. I mean, in my opinion, Larry Norman was among the top writers and performers like uh, Van Morrison. I think I spent more time with Keith Green. with him and having some real serious heart-to-heart conversations with him. Right. Um, Roby Duke, you know, we had serious mutual respect for each other. It's almost as if someone's standing there I don't know what I'd give to see the face that seems to stare He had hired me to do some guitar work for him somewhere in the past, 
back in the 80s or late 80s, early 90s. Uh-huh. <clears throat> but we never spent a lot of personal time together, though. Okay. But I certainly do respect these guys, and their music touched me immensely, you know. I saw Keith Green perform a couple of times down here in Southern California, and, mm-hmm. oh man, he was so gifted, and, and I really think he was a prophet. I think so, too. And, of course, prophets have a, a reputation to be walking walk into the garden with hobnail boots, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stepping on a lot of toes yep. in the process. Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care, don't you care, are you gonna let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Oh, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord, you know it's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts, no one even sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Keith, you know, he was pretty critical of the fellowship I used to be a part of up in New York and, and spoke it plainly to my face. And then a month or two later, he calls me and says, can we just get together for dinner? Uh, I just want to tell you something. And what he wanted to tell me was, I'm really sorry for judging you. <laughs> oh. You know, <clears throat> you know, maybe I spoke too quickly, although he was actually right because I did leave that fellowship only because God was moving us on and that's not where we wanted to be. Do you remember the whole shepherding movement? A little bit. Why don't you go into that just a little bit? <clears throat> well, it was, it was, I think they were good intentions, but, but I think because of man who uh, just has a natural tendency with, with authority and power sometimes ends up kind of lording it over others. And there were, I think, um, mistakes made in regard to people's lives and that kind of leadership to the point where the leadership themselves, in many cases, many of those men, you know, went about the country and just asking for forgiveness if there were any lives that were affected adversely wow. from it. And uh, I, I really respected them for that. But I never bought into the whole thing so much, and uh, particularly because I never had any desire to be a leader. You know, uh-huh. I was content with being one of Jesus' sheep and a part of a flock that was just trying to grow and live out grace. And uh, <clears throat> I just never, I never saw myself as becoming an elder or a deacon or some shepherd. You know, mm-hmm. that's quite a responsibility. And sometimes we saw people that kind of took that job a little too seriously when Jesus says, submit one to another, honor one another in preference, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the greatest among you shall be the least of you, you know, right. and uh, that, that, the whole upside down concept of the gospel, the kingdom, is, is sometimes what some people missed along the way. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't talk a lot about that whole thing. We spent five years there, and then we went from there to Kansas City in 1979, and became a part of a fellowship there, and it, it was somewhat of the same kind of uh, movement, but, but the hands were less heavy, you know, less heavy hands, and less. And so I, we, we experienced a whole lot more freedom. The way I feel about it is, you know, uh, where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is, and uh, he wants us to just love one another and support one another and live out our Christian lives as examples 
more than just words that uh, dominate or control. Right. You know? That's what I see when I look at the New Testament. The, if the Holy Spirit resides in us all, then we all have something to give That's to, right. to help nurture and build the body up. Right. And instead of uh, a, a clergy uh, that is in control and always on the stage and, and a passive laity or congregation that is kind of passively observing, um, I just feel like everyone should have a, 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 a chance to participate and uh, share their gifts, and whether it's a poem, whether it's a, a teaching, whether it's a, uh, some sort of a prophetic word or a song, mm-hmm. a psalm, and uh, what, what have you, I, I think that's healthy. And um, that causes people to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ in each one, and rather than saying, well, let's see, okay, are you qualified? You know, have you right. been to seminary? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, take the people like George Mueller. I've been reading about him. I'm just so inspired by his life. What mostly inspires me about the man was that he always went to God with his needs. He didn't uh, drum it into his congregation to give. Uh, he just let God know his needs, and God answered his prayers. Uh, I thought that's that's one of the most powerful things. It's you know, it seems what I see in the in the in the New Testament is that we're to be uh, available to give our all, and, and God loves a cheerful giver, and we shouldn't give under compulsion. Right. No one should twist our arms. We should give as the need arises, as we see the the benefit it could bring to somebody else. Right. So. Uh, do you have a problem with with people asking for donations, or is it just the fact that you, the people that that are just like you said, pounding it, pounding it, pounding it? You know, I I, I think uh, everyone has their their way of doing it, and I just think if the motive comes out of a heart of love, I, I'm th- I'm thinking about the people that just drive it into you. Like I once heard on the radio, a uh, radio preacher say, if you don't give so much money, these many people are going to go to hell. You know? Oh boy! You know, trying to equate uh, some sort of a uh, statistic. Good grief! When, when I think that's that's pretty, that's pretty brazen. That's pretty uh, scary. Yeah, no kidding. You know, especially when the Lord calls us to to love and live out our li- live out our lives as examples, and to be ready to share the hope that is within us with others. And um, He's the Savior. You know, no one can save another human being. And uh, I, I was just sharing with a, a friend of mine on the phone the other day. I said, you know, I love that verse in Isaiah that says, "Is the Lord's arm so short that it cannot save?" Which obviously the answer is, no, it's not so short that it cannot save. Right. So, but still, to me, the good news of the gospel is the best news. And in, in light of the news that we get on the on the internet and the papers and the TV. Still, the gospel is the greatest news, and uh, it's 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 the it's the faith that really uh, raises man to a to a really special level because of the object of God's love. T. D. Jakes he wrote a great book. If Jesus had never been born, wow, what a powerful book that was! Mm, I haven't seen that one. You know, I, I thought he he said some very powerful things. One of the things when I was reading about George Mueller was that. He just loved reading the Bible and letting the Holy Spirit teach him and show him, uh, rather than all these other expository books, you know. And I think that's what... So my wife and I, on Sunday morning, we we just opened up the scriptures to start reading chapters out of the Bible, and it, it just seemed to fill us in a, in a real special way. Yeah. Of course, we love reading Oswald Chambers, My Utmost Worst High. Oh, yeah. And um, Blakeney, mm-hmm. his devotion about uh, experiencing God. But still, when it comes down to it, 
I think the best thing is to read the scriptures, pray over them, and let the Holy Spirit teach us right. and guide us in the way we should go. Yeah. Backing up just a, just a hair there, Experiencing God, that was uh, Henry Blackaby. And yeah, that's it. Yeah. That book changed my life in that it made me look in a new way at being involved in what God is doing. Not like, hey, God, I've got an idea. What do you think about this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> his, mm-hmm. his approach is look around, see what God is doing, and mm-hmm. get involved with that. Don't try mm-hmm. and, and persuade him that, hey, I've got a good idea over here, Lord. Let, let's do it. <laughs> That's very good. That, now, that was the, the main book called Experiencing God, is yes. correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the other thing that I took out of that book was uh, is uh, decide before God ever asks that your answer is going to be yes. Mm-hmm. Don't um, anticipate what he's going to ask you to do. Just say, Lord, I trust you. Whatever you have for me, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Anybody that, that hasn't read or gone through that workbook uh, by Henry Blackaby, I highly recommend it. That's fantastic. And I think his son also uh, worked with him on the devotional. Yes. And um, so it, it's really great stuff. You know, like the Lord's Prayer says, you know, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes it's important to say, you know, um, my Father, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not only our Father, but because truly when he asks us to pray that, he asks us to pray it as a body, as a people, mm-hmm. uh, called out to serve him. But may your will be done in me as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, when Mary was um, approached by the angel Gabriel, she said, be it done unto me according to thy word. It's like she, she accepted God's will without questioning. And, and if he is a loving father, which he is, there's nothing he's going to ask us that we're not going to be able to do because of his empowerment. And there's nothing that he's going to ask us to do that's going to hurt us. That's right. The people that's that good. think that God is going to ask them something that they're going to just hate and they don't, they're not going to want to do is they've got that equation wrong. Mm-hmm. That's right. You ever read any Philip Yancey? Yes. That was good stuff there, too. I bought many copies of that book, The Jesus I Never Knew. I thought that was just pretty powerful stuff. Let's talk a little bit about your music career. Uh, you know, you can't talk to Phil Kagey without talking about music at least, at least a little bit. Okay. <laughs> You've been called a guitar virtuoso. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine has you on their list of the most underrated guitar players in the world. Not underrated by this guy, by the way. <laughs> and you've even been called a rock god. Jimi Hendrix is reported to have been have said that you were the greatest guitar player in the world. I, I know that's an apocryphal story, and it it, is, it totally. probably didn't happen. But no, he didn't. Yeah, he he probably because of the time frame that this was supposed to have happened, he probably hadn't heard of you. That's true. Because he was, you know, where he was, and you were just starting out with glass harp, as I understand. <laughs> I started out in Glass Harp in uh, 1968 when I was 17, and then when I was 20 in 1971, we actually 19 in 70, we recorded our first Glass Harp album at Electric Lady Studios mm-hmm. in the village in New York City. But we got word while we were up there that he had died, yeah. so it's it's very unlikely that he ever heard of me, right. although I, I'd definitely been listening to him since 67. Oh, no kidding. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I first came to discover his first album... Are you experienced? Yeah, 
know, he sent a lot of uh, shock waves all over the world with his playing. Of course. And uh, I, I was just a, a high-spirited, very ambitious young guitar player who, by the time you know, we played Carnegie Hall in 1971, opening for the Kinks. <laughs> We were we were good. We were good little jammers, you know. Yeah. We weren't really great songwriters, and we were very average vocalists. I'll speak for myself, especially. <laughs> uh, I've always had, in a way, somewhat of a a developing voice that still seems to be developing. <laughs> I don't know what it's developing into, but but it, it's definitely uh, it has more uh, there's more tread worn, you know, since uh, I first started out. 40 years ago on the road. Well, I heard you a few years ago at Spirit West Coast, and uh, brother, you can still do it. Well, I'm still, um, yeah, I, I still love to play. I'm not really crazy about traveling, and I, I do have my um, misgivings uh, regarding what to be on stage sometimes. You know, I've, I've done the whole acoustic thing yeah. for years and years, and then I just finished off um, a tour with a me plus six other musicians, Master Musician Tour. really a challenge but really a good experience too mm-hmm. doing that whole album live with all the instruments you know and uh, I, I really enjoyed that but you know uh, no I could never be what they call a rock god because it, I just don't have the persona for it Yeah, I don't have the mentality for it uh, it's just it's just I'm content with being an underrated guitar player if that's, <laughs> if that's what they want to place me and that's fine with me it's better than trying to live up to some reputation of being an Eric Clapton or somebody like that. That's that's pressure nobody wants to live with. Yeah. Even Eric couldn't live with that kind of pressure. He hated it. Really? Yeah, yeah. And uh, which is probably why you know he he got out of that whole thing and joined up with Delaney and Bonnie. But, uh, and then he went into that whole sort of very Americana kind of musical thing after Midnight. Remember all that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm a and, big Eric Clapton fan. Yeah, he just yeah. kind of like enjoyed being in the background. And sometimes that's exactly where I love to be. You know, I, I really enjoy doing sessions for people in my studio and sending off files to them for them to put on their albums. And I, I find as much enjoyment in that as I, as I have any highlight moment on stage and you know, there, this whole idea of being called a world-class guitar player, I, I can think of many guitarists that are truly world-class, uh, and I never put myself in that category. I don't know what it is. I just think that, for instance, someone interviewed The Edge from U2 and said, have you ever heard of Phil Keggy? And he goes, 
Yeah, I have, but I never understood why it wasn't more dangerous with his music. And I think that's what happened. You know, I, I was dangerous as a guitar player at the age of 1920. And then uh, when I became a Christian in 1970, I just really softened up in my um, my ambitions to be... Uh, to make a mark in the world as a guitar player just completely left me that desire and uh, I wanted to be good unto the Lord I wanted to be uh, aspire I aspired to be uh, to do well in my music and and I think the I've had over my whole career if I could use the word career uh, real ups and downs highlights and valleys you know uh, very immature sounding recordings very terrible songs and then once in a while something that really kind of jumps out as something very sweet and very good and um you know the difference between an album like town to town that had a couple nuggets on it but for the most part not very good songwriting and then you take a look at an album like beyond nature which is has a lot of depth
Wind in the Weed has a lot of depth to it. Yeah. Even Master Musician was the album I did right after Emerging. The, to me, the, the the maturity was way beyond that which went into Emerging. And, uh, I mean, I, I just think that I, I, I've tried so many different things, never hit a formula that worked, you know, uh, for radio or for sales or mm. for anything that made a real major impression on the industry itself. But I, I live for the the moments that are rare, and uh, that's worth it to me, to, to be honest. I think in a, in a throughout a, a concert evening where I would play a solo concert, I know that not every moment is exceptional, but there are moments that might happen where someone says, well, there was a moment tonight in this concert where God just really touched me or the music really blessed me. or I mean, I felt like hope was rising inside of me, and I, I, I think I live for those moments. Mm. That's why I feel fulfilled in doing what I do. Well, so looking back then, is there anything that you would do different with your career? Um... I, I wonder. I, I wonder about that. You know, often. Uh, I know that. You... I don't know if I could have been more original. I, I, I've definitely taken inspiration and influence by many who have, who've gone before me. Uh, you know, Harrison and McCartney and um, Michael Bloomfield and uh, Ellen Holsworth and Pat Metheny and Bruce Coburn and great writers and great musicians. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Hedges, and the list goes on and on. But, and I always see them as quite unique and individual and original, even though they they themselves, every one of them would say, well, I, I got all these ideas from this artist, you know. Sure. So, uh, I don't know if there's anything truly original. We all uh, benefit from each other. Uh, I don't know what I would do different. I, I, I think sometimes the choices of management or settling into the thing like the whole thing with the Christian record label thing when I first got aligned up with that sort of thing mm-hmm. I think it kept me safe and I think it kept me uh, uh, creative and only one sort of a genre right. which is why I, 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 I was trying to go into more of an instrumental direction because I know that I could speak things with my guitar and with melody and with sounds that I felt limited by uh, verbally, you take a Bob Dylan who can write about anything and do, and do it well, and he's Bob Dylan. You know, I think I've had a limited uh, ability and capacity to write great poetry and put it to music. That's why oftentimes I've even gone to poetry to say what I wished I could have said with my own words, but I couldn't do it, like Maker of the Universe, uh, uh, even Rise Up, O Men of God, the great hymn, various other lyrics that I found along the way, As the Ruin Falls, the C.S. Lewis mm. poem that I put to music. Right. So now, are you saying that you were unable to do that lyrically because you were with a Christian label, or just because you didn't have that gift of bringing things out verbally yourself? Well, when it first started out, like with What a Day, I I, I didn't have any label telling me how I should write or how how I should uh, shape and fashion these songs. They just came out 
of me so naturally. And so I went in to record What a Day, and it is what it is. It's a young man who is expressing his faith uh, and his desire to share that faith with the tools that he had at the time when I was uh, 21 years old. So um, then by the time I got a producer in 1976 and the Love Broke Through album took place, he was very encouraging. Buck Herring was very encouraging. But uh, I was I was being directed as to what to say and how to say it, which songs would be chosen, and for this audience. Uh, I think Buck saw this album as an album to the church, to the body. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the before we call it Love Broke Through, I think he suggested calling the album Body Building. <laughs> so, and, uh, I, I, and I was young and impressionable, but still I, w- I had the guts to say I don't think so. But uh, I still, still respected him. He definitely put me on the map yeah. as a Christian artist. Right. And then beyond that, uh, the elders of love in, up in New York, you know, they, uh, they uh, kind of had something to say about the direction I was going. And then when I moved to Kansas City and I did my Flipside album in 1980, had A&R and the record company um, encouraging these songs to be recorded as opposed to those songs being recorded. Right. But they, they, they saw what I had, what I had to offer and bring to the table, and I can say that there was a great deal of encouragement, and some people really like those Sparrow records that I did. Mm-hmm. They're not my among my favorite, and I just think it's mostly me and not them. But say say I would have stayed with Glass Harp, okay, and the three of us with our, our varieties of personality and uh, each individual vision. Uh, if we could have really found a unity to find out what we were supposed to do with our music, uh, I wanted to be very evangelical at the time, mm-hmm. 1970, 71, 72, which is why my songs on those glass harp albums spelled out my faith. But if I, as I look back and listen to those songs, I thought that poetically, Daniel and John were better at lyric painting pictures and stories. You know, John, he wasn't driven by pleasing an, an evangelical mission mm-hmm. or crowd or he wasn't writing to please the church or to build the body up you know I, I i went a different direction i was quoting scripture and songs i was sharing about my faith that's what i felt i had to do uh-huh. and i think because i went that way i think i perhaps uh unlike mark hurd and rich mullins and roby duke larry norman uh among those Keith. brothers that were better songwriters actually Mark Hurd was an amazing. He painted so many great pictures with his lyrics. But I just think they were just smarter people. They were they were better at fashioning songs. That's why I kind of leaned into my my guitar playing, and I kind of went with that as my strength. Mm-hmm. Whenever I played the the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, and I'm in the round with uh, three other writers, primarily writers who have had hit songs recorded by a lot of artists, country artists, so on. Uh, Okay, when it comes to my turn, what do I do? I either do a cover or I do one of my my songs where I'm doing loops and you know expounding on my ability on the guitar because that's my strength, you know, and uh, because I just don't have that kind of songwriting ability, and I'm I'm able to accept that and but carry on in doing what I do mm-hmm. best. In some of the secular writing that I've seen about you, um, they talk about. The fact that, golly, you know, if he had just not gone into the Christian market, he really could have been somebody. Like that, that Ted Nugent quote that says, yeah, I don't know what happened to that Phil Kagey guy. He, he could have saved the world with his guitar. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to those kind of comments? Well, um, 
I couldn't have saved anybody, honestly. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why they said that. I remember getting a, a Western Union telegram from Ted Nugent in 1975. He thought I fell off the face of the earth yeah. after 72 or something. And he said, hey, welcome back. I'm glad you're playing again. I was playing as just I was playing in church. Right. <laughs> That's where I was playing <laughs> most of the time. But I don't know why he said that. I did run into him in 1986 in a restaurant in Detroit. And he said, hey, Phil, you know, are you still playing that Praise the Lord music? And he slapped me on the back. And, and uh, you know, he was jesting with me. Yeah. I, uh, the funny thing was I said to him, excuse me, he's walking by. Excuse me, Ted. Uh, my name's Phil Kagey. I used to be in a band called Glass Harp, and we opened up for your band, Amboy Dukes. <laughs> A number of times. And and I look at him. He looks at me. He goes, "I remember Phil Keggy, man, but I sure don't remember you." <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's you know. Funny. And so you know, I have met a couple stars along the way, and uh, and, and Ted is Ted, and. Uh, now, he's a real rock icon. He's got all the ingredients for it. You know, I just, five foot four, nine fingers, premature balding. I mean, <laughs> it just, I just don't fit into the, I don't fit into that at all. The, am I happy about that? Well, I could live with the nine fingers and five foot four, but man, I wish I could have cut my hair. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Are you familiar with Twitter? Mm-mm. It's twitter.com, and, and basically the question is, what are you doing right now? And you're allowed 140 characters to input you know, what you're doing, what you're thinking, uh, get input from people that are following you, like sort of like MySpace friends type stuff. It sounds really strange and, and trivial, but it really sometimes can, can lead to some really good things. But this couple of days ago, when Robin and I kind of firmed up the fact that you and I are going to be speaking right now, I asked uh-huh. my Twitter friends, my followers, if you could ask Phil Keggy anything, what would you ask him? And one guy, his name is Rick Yeager, he, his first response was, the questions I have regarding Keggy can only be answered by God himself. And then I answered him back and I says, okay, not wanting to assume anything, you're going to have to elaborate here. And he said, he came back and he said, my questions are among these lines. How could so much talent fit inside such a tiny nine-fingered body, and why did I get so little? Hmm. Well, maybe he's not looking in the right places. You know, God's blessed every one of us with, with something that can be developed and nurtured. And the, the, the spirit of man is really a powerful thing, and women, I must say. You know, uh, just look to God, your strength, and find inspiration in being in his presence and, and just see what, what comes out of it. And... Uh, Oftentimes there's a tendency to compare ourselves to other people. Oftentimes people compare other people to other people, artists to other artists. That's why there's polls. That's why there are, unfortunately, uh, Dove Awards and Grammys. And mm. uh, I got. I have uh, to. Stop, I have to stop you there. You said unfortunately Dove Awards and Grammys and things like that. So you're not so much into the into the award thing. No, I'm not. You know, in fact, the last two times I got Dove Awards, I. I I asked my booking agent to keep me out of town for an extra concert just because, I don't know, I just, you know, uh, I remember hearing someone as I was passing by, one of the other artists at uh, a Dove Awards, and, you know, and they say, it's, it's not okay to lose. It, it, it's, it's a terrible feeling, you know. Mm. And uh, he was being quite human about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, yeah, you know, it's really kind of a drag that people are compared, and oftentimes... The Dove Awards were basically artists 
got a Dove Award because they were associated with a, a record company that voted. Uh-huh. It was the industry voting. So who was ever with the biggest record company and the most votes within that company, that's how they did it. But I did one time, I got a Nashville Music Award, and that's the people of Nashville voting through the paper. So it wasn't industry, and I thought that was much more of a fair thing. On the other hand, the guitar players that were also in the list, you know, can do things I could never accomplish, you know. They've done things I could never have accomplished. And so it's unfortunate that there are awards and comparisons that way. I don't know if it causes people to... uh, better themselves as as a result of the competition or if it discourages people. I think it discourages some yeah. and puts a fight into the others. But for me, uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, I, I just rather see everyone get acknowledged and well done, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, that's, that's how I see the Lord look at us, you know, uh, he judges everyone individually and not based upon the comparison of another. Right. I think that's a human characteristic, though. We like to, you know, have the competitions and say, well, that guy over there, he's the best. And, well, right now we've got the Olympics going on. And, you know, we have right. people, you know, trained their entire lives for maybe a 30-second event. And uh, I, I think that's just part of what we do as human beings is we, you know, we, we compare people. Yeah, uh, that's true. Unfortunately, how about those people that missed it by a, a fraction of a second and they go home uh, embarrassed to their country or something. I think that's yeah. really sad. Yeah, feeling defeated yeah. over one one hundredth of a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and uh, I understand um, some people take it pretty personally. Yeah. I've, heard, I've heard of bad stories, you know, what happens to athletes who don't make the grade, who don't bring home the, the gold, the silver, or the bronze, you know. Uh, what pressure that they must be under. Well, but of course, in, in almost every case, it's pressure that they put on themselves. I mean, they're the ones that entered the race, and they're the ones that decided yeah, to make sure. this their, you know, their career up to that point in life. Yeah, I guess is, it's the same thing with stars, actresses, actors, and world-renowned musicians who, who get the fame, and then they have to pay the price with their personal lives, you know, and sure. the loss of privacy and whatever. But, uh, yeah, that, that's a whole other ball of wax right there. I've got a question for you. you. You have probably heard, probably thousands of times, people say something like, Phil, I wish I could play like you. Is there something that you wish that you could do but don't have much aptitude for? Um, I wish I could read music and still be able to play by ear like I've done all my life, you know. Uh, wish I could score music, something I never learned how to do because I got kind of ahead of myself in the area of performing and playing out in front of people by the time I was in sixth grade, you know, sixth and seventh grade, learning everything off records and yeah. learning how to play guitar that way. And by the time I was uh, a senior in high school, I was... You couldn't sit me down long enough to pay attention to any kind of a, an academic book on music, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but take people like Lawrence Juber, who who can score uh, a Matt Slocum of Sixpence. He can he can arrange and write scores for musicians, for string orchestras. Tom Howard, you know, I really respect these musicians who are friends of mine, um, and uh, who can do that sort of thing. Yeah, that's one of the things I wish I could have done. It surprises me that you, you don't read music then? No, I can't. Wow. Yeah, I, I have trouble even with a hymn book. Okay, so all of your music that you play is in your head? It's, it's either in my head or I've uh, unloaded that hard drive and put it on another hard drive. <laughs> okay. You know, in a recording fashion or on tape or someplace like that. I've got, 
I've got shelves of music that I've created over uh, nearly 40 years, you know, since I was a, a kid. So that's what I've done. I record my ideas. For instance, I, I got a new album coming out this week called Phantasmagorical. And um, there's a couple pieces on there which are alternate tunings that I have yet to learn again to be able to play it because I, I, I came up with the music that day, I recorded it that day, then I began to do all the overdubs and then left it, walked away from it. been fairly prolific instrumentally over the years. Yes, you um, have. 
but it's, it's like a farmer who sows seed. A lot of seeds get scattered out on the fallow ground and, or break up, breaking up the fallow ground and making it ripe for the seed. I've done that with a lot of notes and um, song composition. Uh, not sure what's going to grow up into some maturity, but uh, I think the new album, Phantasmagorical, has some really interesting new moments that I've never done quite before.
but yeah, I'll keep on doing that. No, I can't read, but I still can create, and it's in my head. I remember uh, reading about McCartney, how he doesn't know how to notate music or read music, but there's a lot of stuff in his head, and he and George Martin made a great team with the, the string parts for Eleanor Rigby and Yesterday. In yesterday, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why? So on and so forth. Now, that surprises me. I thought Paul knew how to write, probably because I think there's a scene in, in the movie Help where he and John are sitting at this piano, and I seem to remember that somebody was writing music as they were sitting there, you know, dinking on the piano. So, They're probably writing basic chord charts. Yeah, okay. Yeah, which which I can do, you know, and I know the names of chords, and I know intervals, and ask me to find uh, an F sharp on the guitar, I can find it in all the various places on the fretboard, but um, in terms of sitting down and actually reading, you know, reading a score, I mean, that, that blows my mind. I've recorded with orchestras, I've performed live with the National Chamber Orchestra and the Youngstown Symphony, and and here I am, you know, playing by ear up there. <laughs> I've done a Bach piece with the National Chamber Orchestra, and I was the one sweating bullets because, uh, I mean, if I get lost, I get lost. Yeah. You know, they can, they, they've got a conductor that they're following, and they've got the notes, you know, in front of them. Right. And so, I mean, there was a lot of pressure on me to re- remember. I remember working days to remember this piece, this uh, adagio, or no, what was it, Arioso by Bach, and uh, to play it on the electric. And, and there were sections in the music where the second section or the third section sounded very similar to the first but but it was different as well, you know. Uh-huh. So uh, that was a challenge for me. So you were the one that was feeling uh, intimidated by all those musicians that had the charts in front of them and knew what, the, what to do. Well, they didn't intimidate me. Just the process, just the responsibility of okay. being the lead vocalist. It's like, you know, <clears throat> there's an orchestra and then there's there's the soloist, the main soloist out front who's pretty much memorized the entire composition. Right. Uh, th- that, is, that is a bit of a pressure. So... Um, I don't typically live under that kind of pressure, though. That happened a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go out and I do my concerts. I don't even have a song list half the time. Is that right? I'm just pulling tunes out of the hat, you know, and wow. uh, yeah, that's, that's fun. That's fun to do that. Well, it, it amazed me when I saw you at Spirit West Coast where you had all, these, uh, all this gear in front of you and you were doing loop after loop after loop after loop. I had never seen that done before. Man, it just blew me away. And this reminds me that as I was doing research for our talk today, I found this little jewel. You contributed a song to a project called Making God Smile, an artist tribute to the songs of Beach Boy Brian Wilson. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking musically, I can think of no more appropriate song for you to have done than Good Vibrations, which you did there on that, on that project. It was such a groundbreaking song when Brian and the guys recorded that. I mean, they relied really heavily on technology. And that's what I saw you doing that day at Spirit West Coast. It was just an amazing cover for that song. I mean, you, you did it well. And what I'm wondering is, did you select to do that song, or did they say, Phil, would you do Good Vibrations? Or, or Tell me about yeah. that song. Yeah, that small label that put that out, Silent Planet Records, they asked me to do that song. Mm-hmm. And... I said, ah, oh, that's quite an undertaking. 
So when I began to really think about it, I went all the way back to eighth grade or ninth grade when I first heard the song. Maybe it was maybe it was eleventh grade. I'm not sure what. Well, Good let me Vibrations see. was 66, wasn't it? Or 67? It was, yeah, right in there, 66, 67. I was, I'm three years younger than you, so I remember when that thing came out, too, and I'm going, this is not I the Beach it. Boys. What, oh, what is yeah. this? But, I loved oh, it. I bought the oh, record, you know? Yeah, Pet Sounds. And now I listen to it. I can hear at least 30 edits uh, of that original recording. Uh-huh. And uh, I know they spent like nine months or six months on that song. Brian going back and repeatedly changing things, finding excerpts from other reels of tape and putting it in inserting so when i went in to do it i i just said i'm gonna i'm gonna try to do this as close as possible to the original the thurman i was able to uh, replicate with my guitar and voice combined and speeding up the voice so it put my my voice two octaves higher right in line with the guitar and uh and so i did that with a i I created that into a sampler and that would just trigger the sampler but the, the keyboards, I did the keyboards, and I brought my friend Ken Lewis to drum on it, and Gene Miller did the vocals with me, and uh, so he could do a lot of the Mike Love parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was hoping to really do a good job on that song. And then Tony Shore told me that uh, Brian Wilson's manager played the song for him, played the album for him. Yeah. And, and he commented most on that song. He liked that song the best. <laughs> awesome. So that really made me feel fantastic, you know, that he actually, he didn't know who I was. And, you know, I'm this unknown underground uh, CCM artist from some somewhere <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in doing that song. And then, and then I also did on Acoustic Cafe, I did God Only Knows. I was asked to do that song for another small little independent label called uh, Spring Hill. And I, I, I took that song pretty seriously, I think. You know, here I am, twice the age of Carl Wilson when he sang "God Only Knows." Yeah, and uh, but you know, I tried to do it the best I could. I love that song. Those two are two of my favorite Beach Boy songs. Well, I've been a Beach Boy fan since I first heard him when I was just, a, I think, in third grade or something like that. You know, when they first came out, mm-hmm. and uh, man, it was it was so cool to to hear this good vibrations from another guy that I admired for years. You know, doing Brian's uh-huh. work, so. It was. Oh, that's great! Yeah, it was. It was just awesome. Well, you know, I'm thinking about doing a new podcast. I'm already making a list of songs I'm going to use. I'm going to play "Baby Blue," which mm-hmm. was a Bad Finger song I covered. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play "Good Vibrations," a mix nobody has ever heard. Mm-hmm. It's one of my alternate mixes. Okay. And uh, let's see what other songs were. Was I thinking about doing uh, a remake of an, an old song of mine, "Passport"? I did for this uh, CPR Volume Three. Contemporary Progressive Rock, Volume 3, Okay, I did a track for, and a few other uh, covers, and um, I think that would be nice. And then also, I'd like to play some of Sarah Brendel's music on the next podcast, and a couple of unknown, you, you know who um, Nina Landis is? No. She's a California girl. Uh, she sang on my acoustic cafe. She did that songbird uh, Fleetwood Mac tune. She has a, a voice of an angel, and uh, there's a song that she uh, sang for uh, Jason Truby of P.O.D. that was recorded at my house, and I've gotten permission from both of them to put it on a podcast. And, awesome. Um, but, um, but, oh, you know, I wanted to say, you mentioned third grade. 
first listening to the Beach Boys. Yeah. I was in fifth or sixth grade, and I did Moondog in a talent show. Moondog was uh, an instrumental off their first album, Surf and Safari. Okay, yeah, that goes way back. Oh, We're man. stretching way back. You know? <laughs> yeah, Most of the listeners are going, what? Who cares? Yeah, who but, cares? Yeah, yeah, that's all right. Old dogs like us. We got to go back once in a while. Yeah, this is way before the Beatles came out. Oh, you no know? kidding. Yeah, that's right. Two years, You're about three. to, though. You know? <laughs> yeah. They were probably in Germany at the time. Probably, exactly. You've probably been asked this a thousand times, but if you could jam with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to jam with? Um, I don't know. Uh, I heard that you got to jam one time with uh, Paul McCartney. I did. Mm-hmm. That was fun. I'll bet it yeah. was. Now, aren't you related in some sort of shirt-tail way by marriage? No. Okay. No, his mom was Irish and my mom was Irish, and that's about as close as we get. Okay. I thought uh, I had read somewhere that, you know, a sister-in-law married a brother-in-law or something else, and there was, you know, you were at a wedding or something where you met Paul? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, here's how it happened. Uh, Scott Ross, who I mentioned earlier, um, he works at CBN, and and. 1985-86 there was a, a a lady there uh named Laura Eastman working there and he said you got to meet Laura and she wants to do a a project you know promoting the book the bible called the book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so they put us in touch and I went down there and I recorded a song called discover the book uh and it was never released and uh and then they went into production of a video and uh they put, you know, clothes on me, makeup on me, and had a cast of dozens of people. And they uh-huh. rented a hotel and had the whole, the whole backline crew and a director from New York, Warren Marcus, and all these people. And then the, the CBN cut the funds to finish it, so it never got finished. Hmm. And uh, um, it really was funny. It looked more like a carnival, you know, than it did a, a music video. But it was really <laughs> odd. But that's how we became friends. And then whenever I played down that area, she and her friends would come to the concerts. And then when I played in New York, she and her man-to-be, her husband-to-be, Donald Malcolm, came to my concerts at, the, like, the Lambs Club, for instance. And uh, and she contacted me about playing music in her wedding, and I was the only music in her wedding. Wow. I agreed to it, and I told her what uh, available weekend I had in September of 90. She arranged her wedding day upon my availability. Huh is really amazing yeah that's that, cool that surprised me and then proceeded as we went further into the details of the wedding and the music selection um, she said oh by the way the mccartney family will be in the wedding uh wedding party and um and i go oh well thanks for the thanks for the warning <laughs> and so yeah i was on pins and needles you know and there there he was standing there uh, a groomsman uh-huh linda was a bridesmaid and James was the ring bearer, and their daughter, their daughters Stella, Mary, and Heather were in the wedding party as bridesmaids. Wow! And um, Paul and I got a chance to visit and chat and play guitars for about a half hour, and and he made a lot of funny comments, you know. Uh huh. And he said stuff like the night before. He said, "Now tomorrow, just have fun with it and be of good voice." And then the next day, he said, you did a fine job. You got a nice voice. You remind me a bit of James Taylor. <laughs> and uh, and then he, he told me, now that particular song that you sang, uh, the way you pronounce that one word, you should pronounce it this way. 
told me how I should pronounce a word in one of my songs. Wow. And, uh, you know, ever the producer, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and, uh, and his father-in-law, Lee Eastman, he said, son, you stick with it. You'll go somewhere someday. <laughs> I go, thanks for the advice. <laughs> and, and so, I, you know, it certainly was a... It was a fun experience and humbling at the same time. Not humbling in a, in a sort of like I feel embarrassed. It right. Just, it just made me realize, even again, that it is a big world out there. And when stars get to be really big stars and the music industry and their uh, representation, it, it, it's it's enormous out there. And I am just one of the little guys, you know. Yeah. Someone say, uh, asked me one time, well, well, what kind of musician are you? I said, I'm a working class guitar player. Because I can't just sit back and live off royalties. I don't have royalties that add up enough to pay bills, so I'm on the road, you know. Yeah. And so just like my dad and brothers, I'm blue-collar, you know, all the way. So there you have it. That's surprising to hear. I would have thought that with, as you already said earlier, you've, you've put out a huge body of work. But uh, So it's surprising that there's not enough uh, royalties to uh, at least uh, pay the bills. <laughs> Well, uh, the last record company I was with was uh, Word, and that was 2002. And that last album I did for them uh, was Hymn Songs, and it, it just, it just it, I don't even know if it ever recouped even, you know, mm. the small production budget that went into it. Interesting. Uh, and uh, since I've been indie, and since 2002, everything is just web, web shop and, uh, uh, and, and my website and selling... CDs and concert, you know. Right. Um, so no, I don't have that kind of distribution these days. I did sign um, a distribution thing uh, by way of recommendation of my management, Ray Ware, mm-hmm. um, with Infinity, and I don't know anything about them, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't know what's going to become of my new release, like uh, Phantasmagorical. It's a wait and see thing, I guess. Yeah, as I have read, Phantasmagorical is supposed to be released tomorrow, August nineteenth. Oh, how about that? Is Good. it? Oh, you didn't know that? Well, I knew it was sometime this week, you know. Okay. Well, I, I, I hope that it comes out on the August 19th, because that happens to be my birthday. What a wonderful gift, Phil. Thank you for releasing the CD on my birthday. <laughs> oh, that's phantasmagorical. That's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> great, great. Good. Well, Phil, thank you so very much for your generous gift of time today. Uh, you're welcome. It's really good talking to you, getting to know you a little bit, too. Now, I understand you're going to be here in uh, uh, Southern California in September. You're going to Carlsbad. You're going to be with Fernando Ortega, I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to come down and, and uh, meet you then. Great. I'd love to meet you, too. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So, again, I want to thank you, Phil. God bless you, and uh, he's given you a wonderful gift. I know you're aware of that, but, uh, you know, there, you, whether or not you have big uh, royalties coming in from your music, you have a lot of people out here that love you and love your music. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate it. Thanks for the support, and this little man is going to keep on going as long as you can. There you go. All right. Okay. Thanks, Phil. God bless God you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, again, Phil Keggy, thank you so much for being on the LifeSpring Show. Take a look at philkeggy.com and see all the goodness there and buy his music. I'm also going to have some of Phil's music at the LifeSpring store at lifespringmedia.com, so you can check that out as well. Be looking for the brand new CD, Phantasmagorical, and grab a copy just as soon as you can. Maybe by the time you're hearing this, it's already available. Pick it up. You're going to love it. You heard two cuts today from the album, and it is an amazing album. Help this working-class guitar player pay those bills, would you? Buy Phantasmagorical. Well, it's time I let you go, right? 
Please remember to call or send in your feedback regarding the interviews that I've been sharing with you. More, less, shorter, multi-episode. I want to know what you want to hear. Steve.lifespring at gmail.com or preferably toll-free, call me at 877-433-9091. Until next time, may God bless you richly. I'm Steve Webb.